Welcome to the Permanent Wealth Podcast, where we explore the art of investing and personal finance. My name is Adam Walkham, and during this series, I will be interviewing a number of super smart people where we discuss the biggest issues in both investing and personal finance. Nothing contained within this podcast should be regarded as personal investment advice. The discussions within are for information and entertainment purposes only. If you have any questions on how any of this relates to your personal circumstances, please get in touch with a financial advisor. This episode is brought to you by Permanent Wealth Partners. Permanent Wealth Partners help career professionals such as lawyers, consultants, and bankers achieve a sense of profound financial peace through financial planning. Their clients achieve absolute clarity on their current and future financial positions, structural safety in terms of risk analysis and mitigation, and maximize growth opportunities through portfolio optimization. If any of those sound interesting to you, then get in touch with them at hello at permanentwealth.co.uk. That's hello at permanentwealth.co.uk, and they will see if they're the right fit for you. And now, on with the show. Hello, everybody. Welcome back. Thank you for joining me today. Today, we're doing a slight change of gear. We're moving away from the investment side and going along more of the, let's call it the career journey path with a little bit of mental health sprinkled in there as well. So today I'm really pleased to be joined by Gavin Christie. So Gavin is the founder of Christie Consulting Group, which is an executive search business. He's also the founder of The Job Mentor, which is a career coaching business. And why I've got Gavin on today is because Gavin's journey to being a founder and going through the life of working in the city with its ups and downs is is a fascinating journey and one he's very kindly agreed to share with us. So really this this podcast and this episode is about the, you know, the pressures we all face in high pressure roles, either in the city or you know something like that. The pressures we carry as either breadwinners in a family and/or you know the modern pressures we all face in, the, in this busy life, and how at some times those pressures can get frankly, too much. And so really, it's uh, Gavin has, as I said, kindly agreed to join us to help us understand his journey and his his experience of this. So Gavin, look, thank you so much for joining. Not at all. Adam, thank you so much for having me. I really, really appreciate it. Pleasure. Pleasure. I'm really happy to have you here. So I think like Gavin, you know, clearly I, d- I just defined you there as, you know, the founder of your executive search business, your, you, you've, you know, as well as this career coaching. So you, I guess, well, what I see... Uh, and from the outside, you look like someone who has kind of worked it all out uh, and has got an idea where you've you've you know you've left the the corporate rat race in some ways and, and gone out on your own and, and running your own business. But can you just sort of go back a step and tell us a little bit about your old world and and where you've come from to where you are today? Absolutely. I mean, I, I think I think describing my old my old self was you know clumsy, gaff prone, and you know all this all the sort of fun stuff. But I think you know. In in serious terms, I think my old self was very much somebody who was hardworking, very sociable. In many ways, sort of pushed myself to you know to be everything to everyone a bit too much. If you know retrospectively looking back on that, and somebody who you know I, I guess sort of burnt the candle, and I don't mean that so much in the sense of you know working hard, playing hard, all that. I mean there obviously. There was a decent stage in my 20s where I did that. And I think that probably covered up a couple of issues I had, which I, you know, at the time I didn't realize what they were and I didn't particularly sort of pay a huge amount of attention to them. But 
I guess the old, the old me was just always on the go. It was constantly going from work to going to, you know, socializing pre having kids, or it was when I had kids, it was working incredibly hard. And then sort of feeling that I had to be the all encompassing 24 seven parent when I, when I was actually at home and, and, you know, while that served me very well for a long time, it, it, it caused complications because obviously I was, well, not obviously, but I was commuting for four hours a day. I lived down in East Sussex, you know, I'd get home at whatever time, seven thirty, eight o'clock on a, on a, on a weekday and then see the kids three days a week for five minutes and then come home on the Friday. And automatically I would not give myself a second to wind down and just basically go into full parenting mode for the next 48 hours get up, do it again, Monday morning, you know, blah, blah, blah. And, and that was, that was my old self, right? So it was, it was basically somebody who never stopped. And I think somebody who felt the pressure to always be, I wouldn't say the best, but always sort of really put their absolute best face on everything, whether that be obviously at work, parenting, socializing, you know, wanting to keep up with friends, etc. And I think, you know, I wouldn't be the first person who probably suffered from burnout because of some of those factors. So that was in a, in a nutshell, Adam, that would be my, you know, that would be, you know, sort of what I was about pre call it 2015, 2016. When you describe that from an outside perspective, the, the world of recruitment or executive search seems a very cutthroat business. And you, frankly, you know, you either get paid or you don't from my understanding, how much of an impact you know, did the stru- did the structure of that industry and the structure almost the, of the remuneration? How much of an impact did that have on you in terms of the pressure and the pushing? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. I I, I think the thing about headhunting, recruitment, executive search, whatever whatever word you want to stick on it, is that it is it's very binary. You know, it's mm. you are either a hero or you're the villain. There's no, there doesn't really, I mean, of course, you can be the person who does fine and you get paid okay, but it's a pretty volatile business. Now, mm. a lot of that volatility comes from the markets, right? So if, if the, yeah. call it the equity markets, which is where I work in, recruiting people in the sort of equity and tech and corporate finance markets, if those are flying, there's more likelihood you're going to be pretty busy. There's more likelihood that you're going to, you know, you're going to be making money outside yeah. of getting it horribly wrong. But then you're also getting hit by another crosswind or it can either be a good thing or a bad thing is when those specific clients that you work for because you have house clients in a headhunting firm, mm. your area might be, I don't know, busy work for Goldman Sachs or whoever it is. They might be retracting out of the equity markets, pushing into the fixed income markets. Yeah. You always have that sort of, call it volatility of, of, you know, revenue and work coming in. Mm. Now I think, you know, your question, how, you know, how does it, how does it affect you? I think, I think it affects, uh, it affects people differently. I think some people who are call it quite ice, ice, like, you know, they're, you know, they're quite emotionless and they just get on mm. with it and they see the role as being hyper transactional and they don't, they don't allocate any emotion to it because actually that's really the way you should be in this job. I mean, it's not a job that pays to be emotional because yeah. you have a lot of things which, you know, fall out of your control. I mean, I once, you know, I, I, I've lost searches, I've lost placements in, in the past where the husband or the wife, let's say, turns around and says, you know, I don't want to do this because, you know, for whatever reason, mm. um, 
I think she she or he was obviously wearing the trousers in that situation. Mm. And, uh, and you know, you've got a situation where somebody <laughs> is wanting to do a job for their career, yep. but there are extenuating circumstances. I mean, they don't, right? So you, so, and, and the reason why I mention that is because I think it is incredibly relevant from the perspective of control mm-hmm. and slash a lack of control. And I think as recruiters, we always try and believe that we can control anything that we can sort of make something happen. Yeah. And, and of course there are times when, when, when that is incredibly true, but then there are times when extenuating circumstances just mean that you can't control it. Now, if you're in a situation where, for example, that volatility of revenue and that sort of 24th hour, something goes wrong and you take the emotion with that situation, which, you know, hands up, I always would do because I'm, mm. you know, very much an emotional person. I, I, I struggle with that badly. And it wasn't like, you know, I could pick myself up the next day or the day after and that was okay. But it really hung with me and it was tricky, right? So I'm sure you get those sort of things in banking to a certain extent, but I think in recruitment, the problem is you, you have your basic salary and your company says, okay, well, here is your X basic salary. You have to earn, I don't know, two and a half times that salary and then we'll start paying you, you know, your bonuses. But the problem is you're so reliant on transactional situations that y- you don't, you know, it's a bit like when people talk about hypercollegiate behavior, we're not, not a word, you know, all the sort of city buzzwords that I tend mm. to struggle with. Slightly. Is that really around in recruitment companies? I mean, I would argue there's a facade of it. And I think yeah. it always worked with people in recruitment companies who are just good people, good eggs and fundamentally kind people. And I've been lucky enough to work with plenty of them. And I, and I've got some great, probably lifelong friends, which, you know, worked with in recruitment. I think the problem is as a, as a general rule, I think maybe I lucked out a bit on that one. Mm-hmm. And I've heard a lot of situations where people sort of go into companies and they go, yeah, you know, collegiate this and cross selling and blah, blah. It just doesn't hit your bottom line. It doesn't yeah. hit your revenue, or very, very rarely does. Even though the the the, the public line is that it that it does. Cross selling yeah. is in general. It is yes. I would say that totally across industry because it tell you whose bottom line it hits is the guy who's above there who suggests that it's a great idea because he wants the team to do it, and that's why because he gets paid that or she. Yeah. So when you're thinking about just kind of expanding, extending that a little bit, so you've got you kind of feeling as though there are these. Oh, clearly there are these pressures. And, you know, frankly, pretty much any city industry, be it law, be it banking, be it recruitment, be it biotech, whatever, has obviously significant pressures around it. I think a kind of a, a sales-driven culture or industry, effectively, as or sales or transactional-driven industry has that extra pressure, especially when you are remunerated by that. But when you talk about the control factor... Mm. Was it just the pure remuneration coming in that you felt most out of control with? Was it the, uh, I don't know, the career, you know, career journey you felt out of control with? Or was there something other factor that which one really drove the kind of out of control factor? Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. I, I think actually the, the career experience, I think working for someone else where you knew you had to get over a hurdle. To, right. to get paid. I mean, yeah. I, when I say get paid, I mean, obviously you had a basic salary and that was yeah. nice nice and, you know, fine. And basic salaries in, in good executive search firms are good. They're not amazing, but they're good. So, 
you know, you're not on the breadline, but you're sitting there thinking, I don't know, I've got 10 jobs, which are senior roles and I'm trying to hire them. And three of them within the space of a month fall out of bed for whatever reason it is. You become sort of de-momentumized. If moment, that's probably not even a, a saying or a word. We all know what it means. Yeah. But I, but I, <laughs> I'm trying, probably trying to sound cleverer than I actually am. But you, but it, but it's that it, it's that ability where you're you're sitting in a firm and and the momentum just falls out. Yep. And you 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 do feel out of control because a lot of the time you're waiting for your client who's about to offer your candidate a job to say. Mm-hmm. Here is a package which your candidate can't refuse. Yeah, and, and it's and, it, and trust me, I've seen I've seen headhunters who have, you know, in the sort of two thousand and nine, two thousand and ten bounce back time, who had clients who just literally it was a sort of clip the fingers, double the money situation. Mm. Now, you know, these guys were talented headhunters, but trying to close someone when you're saying your four hundred is going to eight hundred, you don't need to be a genius to do that. Yeah. Whereas when you are working markets, that doesn't really happen. You, you, you're obviously selling the opportunity. You're having to make sure they don't get bought back. If they're looking for a role anyway, they're probably talking to another three banks or three hedge funds or whatever, you know, whatever it happens mm. to be. And so I, I just feel you've got a lot of factors that are out of your control. And as, you know, as I alluded to originally, Adam, you, you can't, I think anyone who tries to pretend that the job is very much in their control is, is just not telling the truth because it, it, it never really is. There are yeah. you, know, you, you can put you can put yourself in a great situation, and you can get the averages to work for you. But I think you know it's tricky. It's tricky to control. And I think when you're working for someone else and it's not money coming directly into your account, you've got to get over a hurdle. You've got to you know you've got to work within the you know the regimented setup of that firm. But it, it, it becomes tough. And, yeah. and I think when you're having a, you know, you allude, you, sorry, you, you mentioned the fact that is it the money? Is it the sort of call it the volatility of earnings? I think mm. yeah, it can be. I mean, I, I think it probably is actually as well. I mean, I think when you're having a great year in this job, you know, it's an, e- it's an easy job. You know, the chips yeah. are falling, everything's working the right way and that's great. And, and, and then you don't really tend to have a lot of worries. So I think it fits in, right? I think when you're having bad years, but also things are, falling out of your control probably where you can't actually control them yeah you feel like a fish out of water and you know that can and that can be tough like that really and, that can be tough and it's look that's that's a great sort of segue to and when you were going through this experience and clearly you know it sounds as though you went through a you know we all went through well not we all a lot of us worked through 2008 and 2009 which was crap for everybody and a lot of things you know didn't go that way and for, I for one put my hand up so that's the reason why I left the city because 2008 2009 was just horrific to work in the city but in terms of for you, from your situation and your experience you you know you you felt like you were out of control in at that time so call this pre 2015 what were the ramifications from this what were kind of the signs if you like and yeah. how did you deal with it at that point yeah 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 god i mean so the, I mean, the signs to me were pretty clear. I think in many ways, in that I I think I was constantly on edge, and I I think that sort of I think that's okay when you work on a you work on a sales floor, and you know you're you're sort of in some strange way you're you're encouraged to be on edge because then that yeah you know motivates you to you know 
get on the phone more or go and meet another client or go and do whatever you've got to go and do. So I think I think that can sort of be covered up at work pretty easily. I I always remember, and this is, you know, being quite honest about it. I remember getting on the train, specifically getting home, coming home from work. And I'd always make a point of leaving the office at 5.30 on a, you know, specifically on a Monday and Wednesday, I'd always try and leave by five on a Friday, but just so I could get home at 7.30 and see my kids. And I remember at that stage, the trains were running badly, right? So I, if, if the, if the guy came over the tannoy and he started saying, I don't know, the, the trains delayed by 10, 15 minutes, knowing that my kids pretty much hit the hay and couldn't mm. keep their eyes open at 20 to 8. I would start, like, I wouldn't say panic. Yeah, I think, I think panicking. Mm. And, and I think getting incredibly nervous, you start sweating, you sort of have a horrible feeling in the pit of your stomach. And, you know, and I think, I think that was something which, you know, for obvious reasons, I want to see my kids for 10 minutes just so I yeah. can sort of have that moment with them. But I, I, I also feel that the anxiety that it put through me, and this would have been happening from, God, I think probably early 2015, maybe sort of, got to call it March 2015, a year before I left the city. And then it becomes a bit of an obsessive thing. It's like, I've got to, you know, I've got to get home. I've got to I've got to keep that continuity going with my kids. And then obviously it sort of flies out of control a bit because, you know, you are, you're coming from a job, which I felt slightly out of control in any way. Yeah. And then you're, you're, you're sort of slave to British rail and, <laughs> and we know one wins that game, right? Yeah. You're always, always going to lose that game. So yeah, I think that's when I started realizing. And then, you know, let's fast forward to sort of late 2015 and I, yeah, I just, you know, I was, I was struggling. I think I was, I never really know what a, what a panic attack feels like. So I don't think I've ever had, well, no, I think I have actually in, in sort of, um, you know, uh, call it a home, but I mean, I, I think I was probably having a few of them on the train. And then I, you know, I remember, I remember being at work and having to go and sit in the, sit in the toilet for 20 minutes and just sit there and, you know, just sort of shaking a bit, sweating. And I was like, yeah, this is not cool. I mean, this is not mm. not cool in any way at all. But I, you know, I I think it came back to the fact that I always felt that I could overcome anything, and not not in a sort of Superman way whatsoever. But in a, you know, I went to school. I, I boarded at school from the age of seven, or the mm. age of seven and nearly eight, and I lived in America. My parents sent me across to, to the UK. You know, I'm not making them <laughs> not making them sound like dreadful people. They're you know they're two of the most amazing people I know, but it was very much, it, it was what it was. And so I was, yep. you know, I was, I was effectively at school in a different country from the age of seven wow. for, for three, four years. Right. So my, my point with mentioning that is independence and an ability to, you know, become a bit of a leopard or whatever the phrase is, you know, you sort of adapt yep. in any way. And, you know, the shit hits the fan, you, you adapt, you find a way of adapting. I always, I always could, I always did. That was never an issue. And, and I think I realized at that moment, as I just explained when I was sitting at work, that, that actually this had gone a bit too far and that yeah. I was, I was just losing control. Right? I didn't, I didn't, I didn't know how to overcome it. I kidded myself for six months that I, you know, I was on top of it and I could sort this problem out, but mm. it, it became very, very apparent to me then that I, that I couldn't. And 
Yeah. So that was interesting. And so now look, thank, thank you for, for sharing that because clearly this is, you know, you're, you're going, you're, I, I understand, you know, I completely get that you're reliving past potentially uncomfortable circumstances. So look, I really, you know, really appreciate it. And it is, I mean, but at the same time, it is also fascinating. It's interesting you mentioned boarding school because one of my questions and one of my thinking was around, you know, almost, and this might sound silly, but why why worry about getting home to your kids? Because I know plenty of people who don't care. Yeah, <laughs> Frankly, yeah, yeah. it's not yeah. an issue for them. They get home <laughs> at whatever time and they'll see yeah, the yeah. kids whenever. Yeah, but yeah. I kind of, you yeah. almost answered that a little bit already given the, yeah. the boarding school experience. And yeah. it's so much of in my very pigeon psychology 101 and frankly from my own personal experiences we all want to correct the mistake of our parents that's that's what we all that's what we want to do it is we want to correct our parents mistakes and i think i'm going to put my freudian hat on or whatever <laughs> um no freud's probably wrong because that was say something rude i know i know where you're going with that but yeah. yes no look it's, it's really interesting and so look when so when you know you're going through this 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 clearly challenging time you you, you know you're Going to, you've got the panic attacks, you're worrying. Did this come to just kind of as we can continue through this journey? Did it come to a crescendo? Was there a one moment? Was it a journey? Was it a conversation with someone? What yeah. was the key for the change? Yeah, okay. So I mean, I, I remember this moment pretty clearly actually. And it and it was, I think it was my daughter's, my oldest daughter. So I've got three daughters now, but at the time I had two. And I think it was her fifth birthday, maybe six. Yeah, but probably her fifth or fourth birthday, maybe so seven and a half years, whatever it was. But anyway, we had organized for her to go to with us to Peppa Pig World, which you know everyone, every parent's dream, dream Sunday out. Um, Boris loves it. You, know? you, you come back needing to remortgage your remortgage yep. before you go, and then sounds like center parks. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, so so we had that in diary. It was a f- uh, Sunday whole day expedition meeting, I think my in-laws and, you know, was looking, thoroughly looking forward to it, couldn't we? But I think what happened was I was going through the the, the strife, you know, at work that I, mm. I, I just spoke about. And, you know, I got home on a, and I remember this very clearly, I got home on a Friday early because I was, you know, I'm, I apologized to my boss at the time, but I think I probably fabricated a meeting somewhere. But I was, I was, you know, I needed to get home. I was just like, you know, I'm, I'm cooked here. And I got home, had a really nice Friday evening. And I always found my kids are great because they make you take the focus off your problems, right? And I think mm. a lot of people find that. And I'd always found that with my kids. It didn't matter what situation I was feeling, I was happy around them and, you know, remained to be. So that's, that, that's a nice, obviously really nice thing. But we got to about Saturday afternoon, I think it was like three or four o'clock. And I was just like, do you know what? I can't, I can't do this. I've got to go mm. to bed. So I went to bed and the next morning I remember I didn't sleep all night. And I remember the next morning I woke up and I just remember looking at my wife and saying, can't do this anymore. And specifically, I can't come to Peppa Pig world. And even saying that, you know, put me into an absolute flood of tears. And she just looked at me and said, I get it. It's not a problem. You know, there's going to be plenty more. There's this, there's that. They went to Peppa Pig World and I remember just lying there and feeling like, you know, feeling like a failure, feeling like somebody who it just wasn't meant to be like this. You know, it just wasn't. Mm. I was never going to be the dad who missed a birthday. I wasn't really going to be the dad who spent more than two hours away from my kids the weekend. I just, you know, I, I did not socialize in, 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 in the extent of going away from home a weekend. So, you know, I just could not. 
deal with the fact that I'd I'd sort of I'd failed, and 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 I think also that my guard had been dropped. It was like, yeah, you can get through this. You can work your way through it. You might have mm. to go and take a bit of quiet time, but you know, you're going to be good, right? Because yeah. you're independent and you're able to overcome stuff. And I couldn't. And that afternoon I, I had a, had a full scale panic attack and, and, and it was the first time I'd ever had one properly. Mm. I mean, I know that's probably not true, but I mean, it's the first one that I'd, I'd, I'd ever had one. And I realized this was Right, time to go and see someone. So we had a lovely Spanish au pair who lived with us at the time because my wife was setting up a business and she needed sort of two, three hours of childcare a day. Yep. So I went down to see her and I said, look, uh, Marta, uh, you know, I need you to drive me to the hospital. And I, and I remember the words came out of my mouth and I, I just was like, oh God, hmm. this really has gone a bit, bit downhill, hasn't it? And so, you know, she took me to the hospital, got some, you know, whatever you take to, I can't even remember what it's called, but take to, you know, drop yourself down a, a gear, uh, dyer's ban or something. Yeah. And just came home another three or four panic attacks and my wife got home and, you know, I was in tears and it was horrible, but, but, but I think in some ways that was when I realized I'm not saying the only way is up, but that is when I realized that I'd hit rock, rock bottom. And so I, you know, had a look in the mirror and I just said, well, I'm going to call my boss. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to tell him, tell him what it is. I'm just going to say, mm. this, this is it. And he was good about it. He's a good guy. Very, very sort of, you know, classic sort of alpha city goer. You know, I can't imagine he's a, he's an, he, he is not the emotional type, right. But he understood yeah. it yeah. and he, he said, we'll support you and yeah, get back as soon as you can type of things. Obviously, you know, he's running a business, but I just said, look, you know, I can't guarantee anything here, but I'll, I'll do what I can. But yeah. I, I felt I had to be honest with you because, you know, and then he, you know, he was honest about it. He said, Gav, like I can tell your work has dropped off and, you know, dude, you've lost, <laughs> you've lost two stone. I mean, that mm. was, that was probably the biggest giveaway for me that I'd, I'd, I'd gone from being a normal, well, some might say chubby, but you know, normal sort of physique. And I was skin and bones. I mean, it wasn't, wasn't good. So, you know, he was pretty cognizant of the whole thing. And he was like, look, I, I, I've seen this coming. Yeah, I didn't know what was going on, but thank you for telling me. And let's, uh, let's see what we can do. Wow. Yeah. And, and then, you know, clearly you took some time off, recuperated a bit. Did you, you know, did you speak to someone and, you know, what, how did you, or just, you know, we've kind of, as we're going through the journey here, we've kind of, we've gone down the, the kind of, we've hit the bottom and now we're kind of yeah, looking yeah. to build the back up. So yeah. what were the, I guess, what are the stepping stones or the, not the stepping stones, the kind of foundation stones at that point over the next couple of weeks and months that you put in place Yeah, yeah. that yeah. really kind of felt you pull back up? Yeah, exactly. And it was, it wasn't instantaneous, Adam. I mean, it was something yeah. where it's almost like you've got to mourn, you know, I think in a lot of situations, people always talk about this, don't they? I mean, they even talk about, you know, when markets are going down, mm -hmm. losing 35% of your portfolio, people go through stages of, of grief, as it were, yep. financial grief and whatever, but it's called, I, being a, it's called being a cryptocurrency investor. Yeah. yeah. I know. Well, I found that one out the other day. Actually. Yes. Um, but, uh, you know, it, it, it took a bit of time. It took probably two, three weeks for me to actually pull myself together. But yeah. the, the great thing about it was I, I had to go through some very, very painful moments on my own, uh, yep. like horrible, painful moments of my own, but knowing that it was a process, right. It's almost like it had to work itself out. Yeah. 
physically work itself out. But I, I spent a huge amount of time with my kids, took school every day, did everything with them and, 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 and was able to look at a calendar and go, wow, this is a Wednesday afternoon and I'm picking them up at three and I'm spending every moment with them. And, and, and I think that was my sort of my way of getting back on track. Yeah. You know, I, you know, I'll always thank them dearly for that because I think, you know, not that they'll ever know, but I think that was, that was the, the, the thing that, that really got me, got me back. But, you know, the process of how did I go about it? I went to see a therapist. Um, I, I had to kiss a couple of frogs. I mean, I think I saw three, four. And my, you know, I guess my note to anyone else who is ever going through that situation is don't be disheartened by the fact that you actually go and see someone and you feel that it doesn't click or you feel... Yeah. It makes you feel worse or whatever it is, because fundamentally it's a process that everyone will always go through, but never, ever give up hope because mm. there are some absolutely bloody awful therapists out there, not to name any, but there are also a huge amount of flipping amazing, excuse my, you know, semi-French there, but unbelievably amazing people who know how to bond who know how to make you feel comfortable and know how to get you to talk and i found a lady who did and it and it was a it was a big thing mm. it really was it was, it was a big big thing it wasn't the thing that sorted my life out but it was the thing that gave me the template to then go and sort my life out it's interesting and to offload a lot of you know, a lot of really tough emotions with somebody who wasn't somebody who wasn't necessarily coming back at you or wasn't coming back at you from an emotional stance. They were coming back at you from a psychological stance and and making sense of it all. And, you know, anyone who's had anxiety will understand that it's uh, you know, it can it can throw you around in some pretty, pretty horrible it's not a nice mindset. And to have somebody who can break it down for you and go, you know, this is why you're panicking. This is why you are, you know, you just cannot see the wood from the trees and it's all a bit dark, you know, well, it's, it's because these people are very, very talented in Mm. coming back at you from an unemotive standpoint, but also having a bit of care and having empathy. So, yeah, I mean, anyway, that, that was, that was a wonderful thing, right? I, that gave me, took me from first gear probably to second gear, third gear. And then the thing that changed everything for me, Adam was time. It really yeah. was time taking myself away from my work phone, taking myself away from stress and worrying about the deal, the, the, uh, you know, getting the presentation ready, which if I did it badly in front of my boss, it was going to be a disaster and blah, blah, blah. You know, just basically throwing your phone in the water. Not that I ever did, but I tech, you know, in this. Mm, yeah, that makes sense. And spending time with my kids. And just literally becoming a stay-at-home dad who had wonderful support from his wife, who was incredible, remains incredible, and you know, I'm I'm incredibly lucky. And somebody who, yeah, and just 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 time and and sort of healing, and and mm. I, I can't really put it any other way. Just being able to be very basic, and I guess a bit sort of 1950s, and being around your kids, not picking up the phone, yeah. Not, not looking at the electronic devices and just enjoying the sort of naivety and the, you know, the, the, just the way they, the, the way that kids, there's a reason why a lot of people want to have kids. And, and that mm. was the demonstration to me. I, the fact that I always knew it was great, but from a daily basis, it was the demonstration to me about why 
they are fundamentally the best things that will ever happen to you outside of all the tantrums and all the other stuff. They were my, you know, call it my antidepressant, I guess. Yeah. No. So you've, I mean, that's, yeah, that's, that's amazing. And so you've had this time with just, you know, removing yourself from the work environment, back at home with the family environment, no four hour commute every day, no boss, no deadlines, all of these things. And then at some point from there, you kind of realize that either A, you know, you either need a very low expenditure to kind of just to continue that lifestyle or a, a partner that earns significant money or, you know, your lifestyle, You can, people can be stay at home, that's fine, but they need to adjust their lifestyle considerably yeah, 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 to yeah. do so. So <laughs> where what made you made the decision to kind of yeah. move out of the pure stay-at-home dad phase of yeah. the, and then move into the next gear? Yeah, no, it's a, really, it's, a, it's a really good question. I mean, it's something I battled with a bit, I think, because I had, you know, I had chats with all sorts of people and there were, and, and I think I spoke to a lot of people in the beginnings of Call It The Recovery where, you know, it was, why don't you come and do a job in Tunbridge Wells as a, I don't know, something, something very lovely and, mm. you know, non call it non-commercial, not non-commercial, very non-uncapitalist. Yeah. And, and, you know, very, very differently from what I'd used to. And it was hugely appealing. But I sort of knew in my heart of hearts, I really did, that I was good at my job, that I, I, I was trying to work out what didn't make me happy working in a big organization. Mm. And so, and I think this is where my sort of career mentoring journey also started, where I started evaluating myself and realizing that I could evaluate other people very well. But I, I sat there and I thought, well, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't, honestly, I don't want to earn 30 grand a year. I don't, it doesn't, it, it's going to, it's going to be enjoyable because the, the lack of stress, but, but I'm now sort of feeling ready to think about how I can actually be an authentic professional, not someone who is basically told what to do and, and, and sort of soldier to the, to the major. It's somebody who can actually be the major and, and, and sort of work it out himself. So first things first got made, re- what? no, I didn't get made redundant. That's not quite right. <laughs> I've got to be careful what I say. <laughs> uh, we, we came to an agreement and yeah. I think pretty clear. I remember saying to my boss, you know what, this is the right decision because I'm an absolute bloody waste of space for you at the moment. You know, you're not, you're not a charity. If you were, I'm sure there would be a different, different approach, but you're a commercial business. You need to make money and I'm, I'm just not there. Right. So I think it's time that we, you know, and he, and he agreed, right. And it was led by them very much and, and quite rightly so. And so we, so we broke that one off. And then from that moment, so this is probably four or five weeks after I had the meltdown. Mm. That's just not a dreadful way of putting it, but, um, and that's, I think, when I had the freedom to go, you know, they very kindly looked after me. I've been been at the firm for three years or whatever. They very kindly put me in a position where I could, you know, go and have a nice four, five, six months off, right? Which was, you know, contractually, I'm sure there was a bit of con- contractual stuff there, but I think there was also a lot of goodwill, which, you know, I was hugely thankful for. And I had a long chat with a lot of people in the city and they said, look, Gav, come on, you, you've got yourself back. The thing that was missing from your life was... I guess being with your kids, being with your family, that emotional connection, you've now got that. Why don't you do what you did, but set it up from home Mm. and do it your way? You know, I mean, I I think the thing that people have always said to me is, you know, quite unique. I, I, I wear my heart, my sleeve. I, 
give a, you know, not trying to sound like a, like, like a saint here, but I really do care about people. I fundamentally care about people at times a bit too much of the, you know, the neglect of myself, but, but I've always wanted to, to do things in an authentic fashion that it really reflects the, the character that I am. And a lot of that didn't fit particularly well in a big corporate environment, right? I, yeah. you know, I'm not hyper-organized, don't use buzzwords. <laughs> I joke about that with friends in recruitment. You know, obviously in recruitment, you've got about a thousand bu- buzzwords used every mm. every five minutes. I don't, you know, I get bored internal meetings for internal meetings sake, not my thing. I just like sitting at a desk, meeting clients and getting on with it. And I felt that if I could formulate a business where I could be successful doing that, but also could be hyper-authentic, and be honest, you know, be honest with prospective clients about where I wasn't that great. And I always have been. And, and mm. some of them, some of them recount my first pitch I ever made to them and said, Jesus, God, I'd never, never heard, <laughs> never heard anyone, you know, describe themselves like that. But yeah, I, you know, I, I just felt that was the right way forward for me. And so, yeah, I, you know, spent the summer off, got the finances sort of, so I knew what my runway was and it was six months or so before you know, I'd need to have a hard, hard look at the finances and, you know, got, got going. That's fantastic. And if I had a button that would have a, a round of applause, there would be one, which was, well, no, I mean, applause, that, but it's, uh, it's very kind of you, Adam. I mean, I, I, I think the, the, you know, the, the, while, while probably what I said sounds a bit, you know, self-congratulatory. I mean, I, I think any, anyone who's ever known me my whole life would describe me as someone who is probably as open to taking the piss out of themselves and, and, and their faults. And, mm. I think, you know, in a weird sort of way, it was me sitting there and going, do you know what? I'm just not a particularly great corporate citizen in the yeah. sense that I've always been, you know, really helpful with my colleagues, great friends with a lot of them, but I just, I just wasn't, that wasn't me. I, I, I wasn't the best person they could hire necessarily in a five day a week in the office setting. Yeah. And, you know, and, and hence, as I said, I, I went to a lot of my clients and said, guys, if you want somebody who is this, 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 you, you should not be talking to me. Yeah. If you want someone who's going to give it to you straight, work hard for you, be a bit unique or whatever it is, then, then, you know, and probably charge you less money then I'm probably a guy, but no, I think my, I'm, I'm digressing, but I think my point is, is, you know, there was plenty of analysis when I set up my company of the the things I wasn't very good at yep. and being pretty blunt with myself about needing to improve them, but also being like, look, Gav, you know, it's probably, you know, you really, you really do need to work on these sort of things. So, And when you're in, in this phase of, of the rebuild, which starting a business and, and, you know, not only starting the business, but getting a a balance, a work-life balance back from being, frankly, all work to you know, that period where you were all home and then having a more successful, you know, a more successful balance, work-life balance. What were the kind of protected areas you put in place in terms of, okay, you know, were there, I'm going to definitely stop work at uh, 5 p.m. every day or, you know, protected areas in terms of I'm definitely going to do this or I'm definitely not going to do this. Did you put those in place yeah, as yeah. well? That's probably the key thing I did. And, you know, I've I probably won't won't send this podcast to a few of my clients, but the uh, no, I, I so my my method has always been very simple. I most days either take my kids to school or give them breakfast or whatever it yeah. is. Get in the office probably one day a week, super early at quarter to seven. But on the whole, you know, do everything till eight thirty or whenever they drop off or leave the house. Mm. 
And then cycling at the office, bang, I'm at my desk at, you know, whatever, 10 to nine. And I'll work full scale until five. And that was always the thing I said was, you know, no chats at the water cooler, no, no internal meetings, because I don't need to do those. Yeah. Just being focused on the job and removing all the stuff that actually I really didn't enjoy about the job, which was, you know, sort of all the cross selling and, you know, internal stuff. And that was my thing. Nine to five, home for whatever time, you know, supper, bath time, bed. And then I'd work in the evening. So not every night, but I'd often work, especially mm. at the beginning of the company. I would, I would, you know, 8.30 till 11, 11.30 every single night. And, you know, that, that worked for me. And that, yeah. that was the biggest thing. And I think the second biggest thing that I always, always have stuck to is to be on holiday with my kids for, I, I'm going to set a random number, 70% of their holidays. Yep. So in the summer, I'll, I'll be on holiday with them for four weeks, it, you know, half terms, everything else. And, and, and when I'm on holiday, if I need to go and do some work, if there's something pressing, I'll go and do the work. But I was never, that was my, my fundamental thing. I wanted to be with them when they were out of school, you know, not sidetracked and, and just, just have really quality time with them. And, mm. and I can, you know, I can honestly say over six years, that one thing has probably been the best thing I've ever done. Could I have made more money if I was sitting at my desk? Yeah, I probably could have done, but I was still available on the phone. I just wasn't typing emails all day. So yeah. Yeah. Fascinating. Tell me a bit more about the, the job mentor and the career coaching business. And when, when did this start? Did this start through, you know, was it post, had you already started this business or did it come out from your analysis of the work or it could, tell me a bit more about that? Yeah, I think, I think uh, that that came, I had a conversation with a friend and she, uh, she said to me, you know, you've always, you've always helped your other friends in, in tough times or been, Good at analy- uh, sorry, good at analyzing, good at good at talking to them about their problems, good at, you know, look at, looking at yourself, look at, you know, whatever it is. And I think I just realized that actually that was something I really enjoyed, even in the recruitment job, is analyzing a, 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 a candidate's career situation, advising them. Now, you don't get paid for that. And often if you're giving truthful advice, you're probably setting against your own book because half the time they probably shouldn't be doing the job that you're <laughs> you're trying to put them into. So, so, you know, you, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't sort of actively do that, but I, I, yeah. I guess I felt that that was a missing link and maybe that empath, empathetic sort of angle that I've possessed, I think just wasn't being used. Yeah. And I think I also felt that, you know, I've spent my whole career interview interviewing people. And with that, I felt that I could interview train them incredibly well. You know, I did a sort of part psychology degree at university. So I, social psychology was always something I was very into. And I think you pick up a lot of understanding about how people interpret you through that. And I think it just became something where I felt there was a definite niche in the market because family, friends who've got sons or daughters who were leaving university at the time, you know, I I remember we had a, we had a dinner with one of them and and they were like, look, I don't, I don't, there's no good advice out there. There's Mm. a lot of recruiters who want to put me into a job, but I've never sat there and actually analyzed what I want to do. Yeah. And it's when I came up with the belief that actually, if you can get somebody who can hold your hand, really analyze what you should be doing with your life, and that comes through not only a professional capacity, but what's going to make you happy? What's yeah. going to, how are you going to look back in 10 years? What, what are your, what are your short, medium, long-term goals? How important is money in your life? How important is 
you know, in future terms, spending time with the family, how important is, I don't know, hobbies, blah, blah, blah. And there'll be a lot of these people who'd be dead set on going to work in investment banking. Now, as we all know, and Adam, you know better, better than anyone, there's not a huge amount of time to do stuff outside of that. And even if there is, if you're on a trading floor and the market shut at five o'clock, you're, you know, you're probably quite tired, right? So you don't, so you're, you know, I, you know, it just doesn't fit with everyone. And I think yeah. after going through my own experience, I felt quite strongly about people not just following a path because external gratification or external expectation was top of the tree. Because I think a lot of people, different stages in their life, but graduates will often sit there and go, uh, you know, I should be doing this because mm. I went to X university and all my friends have gone into wealth management or advertising or law or whatever it is. That is what I should be doing. And you get sucked along with the pack. And, you know, the problem is if you make a misstep on your first career choice, of course you can change it. But often, you know, you do what I did. You got into recruitment in these big firms I probably should have set my own company up 10 years ago, but I never did. Or mm. I, you know, and you find yourself getting really sucked in with the pack, sucked along with the crowd. And, and I think for me, it was a, how can I advise graduates or people at career crossroads? And that can sometimes be senior people yep. on seeing the bigger picture and not just going, I went to Edinburgh university or Oxford university, hence I must be a lawyer or I must be a banker, or, you know, I, I coached, sorry, I mentored a, a managing director from a bank, <laughs> someone you'll probably know, actually, funny enough, not that I'd ever mention his name, but, you know, who always been used to making a lot of money. He'd always been used to an MD job title. He'd always been mm. used to a lot of things. And suddenly we spent about 15 hours together. And by the end of it, he went from being, I want a managing director at another bank to he took a job that I think paid him about, a 12th of what he was earning before yeah. saw his kids far more was, you know, big mountain climber, got the opportunity to do that because he had more time, didn't have any health related issues, which previously had had a couple, you know, so it was it, that, that for me was a big, big thing. So, but I think I, you know, I digressed a bit, but I think it all came through my ability to want to do a bit more than transactionally yep. place people. I think that's a look. I think it's a it's a hugely valuable role which you can play in a and you can play a key part in a lot of people's lives and especially that point where they need it is generally a point of quite high stress. Yeah, you know, it's the classic. I've just you know people being made made redundant from from investment banks, which you know happens every day. Yeah, yeah, there's a bit of that. And, and and since it's, it's happened every day since year two thousand, you know, pretty much dealing, you know. Bank sizes have gone from sixty thousand to fifteen thousand, or whatever yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and a lot of people come out of this thinking, "Well, that's been my life so far." And I went to, you know, most people like, you know, when we start, most people have, you know, you're asking sixteen year olds to define what they want to do for the rest of their lives. No one's got a clue. And so we start out doing something. We kind of continue on. We're relatively successful at it. We do it for a while, and then we get to a point where actually, do I really want to do this? Yeah, and exactly. it's at that point where you go, huh? 
Well, you know, I just think we actually remember having a very, very vivid memory of when I was at UBS on the trading floor, and I've been at my desk since 6.30 every morning, and I remember it was about 8.30, Asian markets had calmed down a bit, and I was standing there with my head pressed against the window, looking up from the fifth floor, looking down at Liverpool Street Station, the people streaming out of the tube at 8.30 in the morning, thinking, I've been at my desk for two hours. Yeah, what are yeah. they doing? What, what, <laughs> what job do they do? How yeah. do I, you know, how do I find that out? And yeah, it's just yeah, yeah, because yeah. you just don't know. No one knows. No one tells you. You just, no. and then you've got to work it out yourself. Exactly. Um, no, exactly. And, and, and I think that is only more, that's more pronounced when you're a graduate because you have no, nothing to, you know, relate mm. to. But it, yeah, the, look, I, I think having done that business, there, there have been so many eye-opening, you know, uh, people I've worked with. There have been some really sort of heartwarming stuff where, you know, I worked with a guy the other day who really had a dread, like big, big struggle for call it from the age of seventeen to twenty-four. Mm. Did his masters, didn't have a clue what was up, and I, you know, I shared my story with him. I think that sort of opened up the floodgates to a certain extent. But he ended up doing something which, which I sort of found in the role didn't place him in the sense I didn't get paid for it, but uh, you know, I was being paid by him to sort of counsel him, I guess. Mm. But he ended up doing something that he'd never really thought about. He certainly didn't think was possible, but was the thing that he'd always actually wanted to do without ever realizing it was what he wanted to do. Yeah. And, you know, stuff like that is great. And, and, and I think it, it just, it, it fills that, that void that I guess, you know, being a sort of transactional professional, you know, you, you always have that void of, you know, if you want, if you do feel empathetic, you, you sort of want to, you want to counsel people to a certain extent. I think that was my main driver, trying to yeah. help people through a period where they just don't have a clue what they, what they should be doing, what they want to be doing. And they're probably making decisions for completely the wrong reasons, which are always because they think they should, they should mm. do something. And I always say to anyone, I, I have a, I have a mentor. I always say, look, guys, the word should is probably the worst word in in the dictionary, because because what it really means is you're being dictated to by what you think the wider world expects you to do, or you know, gaining your gratification through external means, which we all know that that does not make you happy. It can make you happy because it can make you feel big and clever and wonderful, but long term, it's it, it pretty much always ends in tears, right? So, I think, yeah, that was a that was a big thing. Cool. Fantastic. Gavin, we're just coming up to an hour now, so I'm going to just leave it there. Look, it's been fantastic having you on there. Thank you so much. If someone has a question or wants to reach out to you, what's the best way for them to get in touch with you? Yeah, I think the best way to get in touch with me is, I mean, I guess LinkedIn is probably always the best way to get in touch. So it's Gavin Christie on LinkedIn? Yeah, if they just look up Gavin Christie and then Christie Consulting Group or the Job yeah. Mentor, it's all, it's all there. Cool. But, you know, I, Adam, I think we, we discussed originally, you know, I wrote an article on LinkedIn, whenever it was. Yeah. Um, yeah. I would highly recommend if anyone wants yeah. to kind of think about this and I'll actually put this on the show notes as well, a, a link to the article, because it's, the article is, is effectively the basis of our discussion today. And it kind of describes Gavin's journey. I think we've gone in a bit more detail here, but it just gives yeah. you the premise of his, of his thinking. So I would exactly. highly encourage anyone to, to, to read that as well. And anyone who wants to, you know, so contact me on LinkedIn. But I, I think my the base point with all of this is, mm. I put this on the article, if, if me, I don't know, sharing my story, being a bit open about these things helps anyone 
uh, I guess, sort of analyze and understand where they're at and, you know, makes them then want to go, okay, fine. I might send Gav a LinkedIn and, and have a chat. Then, you know, it is completely on the house. And if I can help anyone, you know, overcome this type of thing, then, then it's, it's all worth it. It's all good. Mm. Fantastic. Fantastic. Excellent. Well, Gavin, look, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for your openness. That's, it's been really insightful and frankly, encouraging in a lot of ways to actually hear that someone has able to, you know, go through this journey, come out the other side and look, and I, you know, frankly, I wish you all the best. It's been really nice talking to you and uh, hugely appreciated. Really, my, nice. my pleasure. Look, we'll hopefully catch up soon. Cool. See. Thanks again. Bye-bye. Yeah.